For those who don't know me, I'm Brandon, I serve as the pastor here. We're really glad to have you here this morning. We're continuing a series uh, we're doing through this fall. Our pastoral priority is uh, seeking God. And so we're looking at some different narratives in the Old Testament, uh, different people that encountered aspects of God's character and were transformed and then were uh, provoked to seek God in, in deeper ways. Uh, this summer, I had an opportunity of my family for the first time. We've been planning this trip for a couple of years, but I had the opportunity to go out west. And uh, for me growing up, I grew up in Kentucky. Uh, west was Paducah. Um, and I had not really been uh, much further than that uh, until recently. And so we uh, made the journey uh, north. There's kind of two ways to go out to Yellowstone. We're going to Yellowstone eventually, but it's a long drive. I mean, every day it's about five to ten hours of driving with the kids. Um, so we went up through uh, South Dakota, crossed over uh, through Wyoming, and then uh, went through the Tetons, which I, I was just pleasantly surprised, almost more surprised about the Tetons than anything else. It was beautiful. That Jackson area, if you've ever been there, is truly divine. And, uh, and so uh, we got glacier-fed lakes and you know, tons of hiking opportunities, and so we spent two days in the Tetons. And um, did some hiking. Now, those of you who know me know I am an avid indoorsman. Um, I do not love to hike. Um, and so you can judge me if you want. I'm not 42. I'm, I'm totally comfortable with my skin. But we did decide to do a little bit of hiking. So uh, my daughters did not want to hike, so I only stayed with them. And the boys are, of course, you know, 16, 14, they're down for anything. So I'm like, all right, we're going to do this. We're going to go out. And, and if you've ever been hiking there, it's totally different. Like, I know that there's, like, black bears and some, you know, some, like, wildlife here in Brown County. This is, this is different. It, it's at another level. Like, literally every five feet, there's, like, a, there's like a sign that says, be bear aware. And basically has, like, a picture of somebody being mauled by bears. Like, just watch out. There's bears everywhere. And as we were talking to some of the uh, rangers, actually, the biggest threat, uh, which made me even more nervous about hiking, was not the bears. It's bison. And if you read anything about, it was literally right before, two weeks before we went, there was massive flooding, and then there had been two bison attacks. Like, a woman was literally, an like, 84-year-old woman was walking back to her car and happened to just stumble into a bison, and the bison launched her up into the air, and she survived. But, you know, it's just like, that, that's kind of an unnerving feeling to walk out. So we're like, uh, we were going to take a trail. We went around uh, Spring Lake, this little area. Uh, we're going to take this little three-mile hike. We'll be done, you know, maybe like an hour or 15 minutes. And, uh, and, and on the beginning of the path, the reason I chose this path is because there were a lot of people on the path. And as you know, lots of people means not a lot of wildlife, which is my goal. Um, don't want to encounter a lot of wildlife. Don't, don't love that. So we go and we start this trail. And about a mile in, all of a sudden, all the people disappear. And we hit this trailhead and we go uh, west on this trailhead, kind of deeper into the, uh, into the Tetons and into the thickness of, like, the, 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 the truly, like, the force. I, I literally remember standing in strawhead, and all of a sudden, like, it, it wasn't something I was consciously thinking about. My body was gripped with a sense of fear. Like, I literally stopped, and my boys were walking. I could not move. I was paralyzed. And if you've ever been deep into the woods, you know, there is a sense, like, a palpable sense of aloneness that you feel. I felt suddenly vulnerable. And, and I'm a person that values controlling my environment, so I don't love feeling powerless. I don't love feeling out of control. And as I look around, I mean, just the, the vastness of the forest, 
the, the bear signs. I'm like, I am completely exposed. And not only that, I'm responsible for these two boys. What if something attacks us out here? Literally everything in me in that moment was like, just take off this way with the boys and run back. <laughs> run back to your car. This is not a safe place. And yet, I was like, I'm a dad. I've got to be courageous. We're going to walk in. I'm just all this all internal model. I never share that. My boys being the second service would be the first time they ever heard the story. But this is like what's happening inside. And so we cho- chose in that moment to just kind of continue on little by little. And of course, every like 20 feet, there's a big pile of bear poop. And, that is, and it's fairly fresh. And it's like, Lord, please, this I don't know. And I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that. Maybe it's not hiking for you. Maybe you've felt that, um, you know, that sense of aloneness relationally. Maybe you've felt that sense of aloneness. Some of you are new to the city. I remember being new to Indy 11 years ago. And just feeling this profound sense of this is a huge city, and here I am, here we are, this family of six, and the sea of people who we don't know. Um, and the reality is, not only is that true, like geographically or true relationally, um, that can definitely be true spiritually. I, I think for many of us, our um, what I've heard you articulate, what I've experienced myself, is uh, a sense at certain times and seasons, and maybe for some of us protracted seasons. Just a sense of aloneness. Like, I am alone in this world. And, and, and there's nobody here to help me. I'm alone and I'm vulnerable and I'm powerless and I'm feeling exposed to all of the evil, all of the brokenness. And, and I don't have this sense, this conscious awareness of God's presence with me. And that can create anxiety, right? Just like it did to me, you know, just kind of uh, in my body. It, it can create a sort of anxiety for us as well. And, and I want to use that analogy in the story because this is a similar experience here, but on a much more catastrophic level, what the Israelites are experiencing in their relationship with God, in their journey with God. They are out, literally out in the wilderness. They are out in the desert, right, on this journey. So if you remember the story, we did this uh, talk through Exodus for a year, several years ago, and it was one of my favorite series to teach there are so many great parallels and so many layers of Exodus. I mean, you can read Exodus spiritually. You can read Exodus as a psychological journey of Moses. You can, I mean, it's a real historical set of events, but there are so many things happening here. And the Exodus is kind of the paradigm for the, for the rest of the Bible. It's, it's a paradigm for Christian spirituality about what it looks like to be rescued and delivered out of sin and slavery and idolatry and injustice and to be delivered to uh, a new relationship with God and to become a new society. That's what's happening in the book of Exodus. So if you remember the first uh, 14 chapters are all about Israel being delivered from this megalomaniac, this ancient, anxiety-ridden, crazy person, the Pharaoh, and in this system of slavery, which they had lived in for 400 years. And so chapter 15 starts with them beginning, crossing the Red Sea, and beginning a 40-year journey to the promised land. God had promised to bring them into this land flowing with milk and honey, into a place of prosperity and progress in every way. And they stop uh, here in this section of the narrative for a year at Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is the place where God invites them into a covenant relationship. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the foundational relational thing that's often missed for people who see the Ten Commandments just as a set of rules. They forget in chapter 19, God establishes a relationship and then he says, out of this relationship, then this is how I want you to live. I'm going to teach you a new way to live. You have been taught a way of being in the world. 
that is driven by the anxiety of Egypt. It's driven by what you can produce. Who you are is basically what you can produce, right? You've been dehumanized and degraded, and I want to deliver you, and I want to form you into my character. I'm going to be your father. You're going to be my son, my children. I'm going to form my character in you, my heart in you, my values in you. And I'm going to form you into a new society. Your old way of being was characterized by injustice and idolatry. And I'm going to form you into a community of justice. You're going to be the light to the nations. You're going to represent me in the promised land. You're going to be the instrument through which salvation is going to come to the rest of the world. So as a part of that, God invites Moses onto Mount Sinai for 40 days. He's in the presence of God. The Bible says literally speaking to God face to face. He's receiving the tablets of the law, the, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. And he's also being given instructions for building the tabernacle where God's presence would dwell among the people as the organizing reality of community. Now, that sounds awesome, right? But we use this analogy um, if you know anything about the presence of God, it's a powerful presence. This is not like a, a hallmark, sentimental hallmark. It's like, oh, God's going to dwell among me in this kind of like groovy vibes kind of way. It's like, no, imagine that somebody decides to build a nuclear power plant in your backyard. I mean, that's what's happening here. The presence of God that created the world, the holiness of God, now lives among you, right? It's the center and reality of your lives. And yet, there's the need to protect yourself from the presence of God. And so there are all these laws and rituals around the tabernacle that were designed to mediate the presence of God so that just as you, know, you go into a power plant fully protected with all the gear, you have to enter into the presence of God with a sense of protection because it's a dangerous place to be in the presence of God as a holy. So that's kind of the context. And then chapters 32 to 34 bring us into a significant kind of shift in the book of Exodus. Up until that point, the book of Exodus had been about Israel's suffering, right? And now it begins to shift for the first time um, into bringing Israel's sin at the forefront of the narrative. And we're going to deal with a major incident, which we're maybe familiar with if you grew up in church. In chapter 32, it's the incident of the golden calf, right? And the incident of the golden calf is a really fascinating, it's not the main point of what I want to talk about today, but it is an interesting uh, framework or kind of an anatomy for how anxiety can spread in a community and create really bad things. It's, it, it shows us how anxiety and doubt and restlessness can spread through a community and <clears throat> essentially create faulty narratives that can metastasize into a sort of uh, cancerous reactivity and rebellion and sinfulness. Um, and, 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 and this kind of idea of anxiety and, and what they're experiencing here, it starts in chapter 32, if you notice, when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make God's for us who will go before us. Because this Moses, the man who brought us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Now, some of you guys know what it's like. You have small kids. Um, I, my kids are older now, but I remember when they were uh, just little babies, little kids, and uh, they loved to play peekaboo, so they're like a positive. Literally, the, in the development of childhood, you think about normal psychology and, and the way their brains work, when they put their hands up over their faces, they literally think that the rest of the world disappears. Man, I love that. I so miss that phase where the kids would just cover up, and it's like the whole world disappears, and then they peekaboo, and it's like everything's back. 
Everything's restored. It's such a beautiful look. You have grandkids or whatever. But you also know that it can work the other way um, into something called separation anxiety. Some of you guys are living that reality right now. Every week as you go to drop your kids off, it's a ritual of separation anxiety. I remember taking my kids, I will not name my children, but one of my children had extreme separation anxiety, a big time introvert. And we would go and drop this child off in our nursery at church. And for about three months, probably, I don't know, 15 months old, this child would literally be punching at my wife, pulling at her hair, just anything he could do to cling on to my wife, just because that separation anxiety is so real, right? And, and for some of us, that really never goes away, right? That sense of feeling unsafe in the world, that sense of feeling separated or maybe not attached in appropriate ways because of the trauma that we live. And that's really what we see happening even in this story. There's a pattern here of how anxiety spreads. It starts with this sort of collective amnesia, right? They, they forget God. They forget who Moses is. Remember, these are the same people who just witnessed firsthand the plagues. They, they just saw God deliver them, strike down their enemies. They just saw the Red Sea parted. They were just given manna, miraculous food from heaven. Literally, the word manna just means, what is this? Like, they were just given this food. And, and they were fed by the very hand of God. And Moses has only been gone for a couple of weeks. I mean, how quickly we forget God's deliverance. And the irony of the story is that Moses has withdrawn with God to actually bring about more healing and wholeness. So while they're up there planning goodness, the people are freaking out. He's, he's planning to bring the Torah. He's planning to bring the tabernacle, his presence near to them. And yet they're, they're questioning God's motives in Moses' absence. That amnesia then gives way and makes them vulnerable to anxiety, which is really, again, their default mode of being, their default kind of emotional way of being in the world is anxiety. And then that anxiety leads to this faulty narrative, this internal sense of abandonment. And again, this is the narrative under which they live for 400 years, as you would if you were a slave over multiple generations. It was literally embedded in their bodies, both individually and corporately. It was embedded in kind of their collective nervous system after 400 years of trauma after trauma after trauma of living in Egypt. And, and there's a kind of double trauma that's at work here that I think plays into this anxiety that we need to pay attention to because it's similar to the reasons why I think we struggle with the active presence of God in our lives now. If you know anything about adoption, my youngest daughter is adopted. You study uh, trauma with adopted kids. You study kind of trauma-informed care. One of the things that you know about adopted children is one of their primary struggles it's just this pervasive sense of abandonment. And studies actually show that a lot of the trauma happens prenatally, like a big chunk of it happens before they even find a woman, because they're separated from their birth. There's just this sense of, I'm abandoned, I'm alone, nobody loves me. And it lives on kind of unconsciously and automatically when they're little, but it begins to become more uh, you know, explicit and more conscious the older that they get. And there's a sense in which that's kind of happening here in the lives of the people. There is this psychosocial trauma of slavery. They've, they've worked anxiously for their bread and their water. They've, they've lived under uh, an oppressive state-sponsored system of surveillance 
and control and violence if they didn't meet their quotas. There's this constant sense of if God is good, if God is our deliverer, if he is our covenant God, where is God right now? Why is God not delivering us? If you look deeper underneath that, it's not just psychosocial. It's also a sort of spiritual trauma that is universal to everyone, but is acute here in this moment in Exodus. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read of the story of God architecting the entire world, the entire cosmos as his temple. That the pattern of Genesis 1 and 2 is the pattern of the tabernacle, which becomes the pattern of the temple, which becomes the pattern of our spirituality, which is that God creates a garden that is supposed to be a temple of his presence, the Garden of Eden being the holy of holies within the world where Adam and Eve are placed to experience the presence of God in unmediated, unhindered communion. When they sin, they're cut off from the presence of God, they're cut off from their home, they're sent out of the garden, they're sent to live out their days east of Eden. And so there's this kind of separation anxiety, this spiritual separation anxiety because they've been alienated from their true home that I think lives underneath even the psychosocial trauma that they'd experienced in Egypt. And it's like a tinderbox, just kind of waiting to explode. And so they, they have this faulty narrative that they're operating with. God has abandoned us. We're on our own. Our future is uncertain. So we've got to take things into our own hands. And again, this is fascinating because if you read the narrative of Exodus, God saw their trauma. He says, I've heard the cries of my people. I've heard their groanings. I've heard the injustice. I've seen. That's what he tells Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And he enters in and he rescues them. He brings them into the wilderness. And he's teaching them what it looks like. He's essentially reparenting them. They had an abusive father in Pharaoh. He is reparenting them now in the wilderness, teaching them what it looks like to have a good father, right? Teaching them what it looks like to trust and to walk in patience and dependence on their good father. God is reopening a way into his presence. But again, just one small episode of Moses stepping away. Moses, who is like their spiritual father, who represents God's presence, God's presence to them, he steps away for a short period of time, and they freak out. It triggers all of their anxiety, all of their reactivity, this sense of abandonment, and this anxiety spreads, not only within them individually, but interpersonally, it spreads through the entire camp, even infecting Aaron, who was the leader. This is how anxiety works in groups of people. Amnesia the sense of anxiety and abandonment. There's a profound sense of aloneness that leads them to this sin of idolatry. And again, it's easy to look at the story, to judge them and say, man, you know, they're just so dumb. How would they do something like that? But like, how often do we succumb to the same dynamics? How often do we live with a sense of aloneness? How many of our dumbest decisions, our most reactive moments, where we have been filled with a sort of existential angst and anxiety, and then we step out and we just do something silly. We do something rebellious. We do something sinful just out of a sense of feeling alone. I am alone in this world, right? We forget God's presence. We forget that God has been with us. We forget that God has brought us to this place in our lives, 
And we just anxiously reach for what's comfortable, what's familiar, right? We reach for control. We reach for managing our lives. And it's in an effort to keep the fear and anxiety at bay. And so what we see in this story is the story of humanity, right? That even though God had just rescued them from Egypt, he still needed to get Egypt out of them. And it's the same with us. We live with a sense of abandonment. We live with a sense of feeling alone. And we need to be reparented. We need to be brought back into the reality of God's presence. I mean, that's the daily struggle of being human, right? It's waking up in the morning for some of us and just feeling alone. Just feeling like, man, there's nobody here to rescue. There's nobody here to help. And and then being invited back into the presence of God, being reminded that God is with me. He is for me. He's not abandoned me. Those are lies that need to be replaced with truth. And so chapters 33 and 34 bring us into the middle of this crisis of faith for Israel, this crisis of leadership for Moses. And I just want to just point us in the direction of what it looks like to experience healing. There's two things I just want to say about this uh, this passage here in 33 and 34. One is I I want us to be aware of uh, the danger of progress and prosperity without the presence of God. So in chapter 33, in the midst of all of this anxiety, the Lord speaks to Moses and he says, go up from here, verses one to three, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt to the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring. I'll send an angel ahead of you. I'm gonna drive out all of your enemies. Go up to this land flowing with milk and honey. But here's the catch. I will not go up with you because you are a stiff-necked people. Otherwise, I might destroy you on the way. God presents Moses with a surprising opportunity. There's all of this sin, right? And again, Moses doesn't know. Is God going to forgive? He says, perhaps, in chapter 32, perhaps he'll forgive us. Perhaps he'll renew his covenant with us. But I don't know. There's this sense of loneliness and uncertainty that Moses carries. And God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm still going to give you what I promise. I'm a God who keeps his promises. I'm going to give you the promised land, right? All the things that you could imagine. I'm going to give you political success. I'm going to give you military victory. I'm going to give you economic provision and prosperity. I'm going to give you fertility. None of your women will miscarry, he says. Nothing will happen to you. You will have security. You will have land. You will have fertility. You will have longevity. But here's the trade-off. I'm not going with you. My active presence is not going to go with you. I'm withdrawing my special personal presence. If you think the good life, and this is kind of what the story of that golden calf is all about, if you think the good life is just prosperity without my presence, I'll turn you over to what you think you want, but I'm not going with you. Now stop and think about this for a moment. What if God came to you and he said in some sort of Faustian bargain, all those things you long for, everything your heart desires, I will give it to you, all the things that your heart longs for, all the things that we spend so much time scheming and manipulating to get. I'll give you the wealth that you're working so hard in your business to get. I'll give you the success that you want, that you've spent all these years in school for. I'll give you fame. I'll give you status. I'll give you children and grandchildren. I'll give you a nice house in a nice neighborhood with all kinds of promises of security. But there's one catch 
You don't get to daily experience intimacy and joy and love and the beauty of communion with me. Would you take it? Have you taken it? Have I taken it? Would we even know the difference? For many of us, I think especially the American church, we easily confuse the blessings of God with the presence of God. And the terrifying reality of this story is that you can actually live a very superficially hashtag blessed Christian life without the actual presence of God in any meaningful sort of way. There's a danger of progress and prosperity without the presence of God. It's possible to pursue a Christian vision of the good life while neglecting the daily pursuit of a life that's organized around the pursuit of God's presence and his power. And this is the crisis of faith for Israel. This is the crisis of faith for us. We often want the benefits of freedom and liberation without the presence of the liberator. We want the gifts without the giver of the gifts. We want the kingdom of God without the king. And Moses says, you know, I, 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 don't, take, I don't accept that bargain. I don't accept that offer. He says, if, if we do that, like what is it that is gonna distinguish us from all other people? He's talking here about identity. This is identity language. What is it that's gonna make us different from all the other nations of the world? If we go up without your presence, then we're just a bunch of pagans. <laughs> this is the difference between a religious person or a cultural Christian and a true disciple. A religious person uses God to get what they really want. God becomes a convenient means to an end, the end of status or wealth or power, or as we see so often in our country, political influence and platform or family or whatever. Moses asks, he says, I want to see your glory, right? I don't, like in other words, what he's saying is that there are ways to pursue other glories. I don't want those other glories. I don't want to settle for anything else, the word glory is the word shekinah, or kavod. It literally means a weightiness or a heaviness or something, something that's the central organizing reality of our lives. And Moses says, I don't want to center my life on anything else. I don't want to find purpose or meaning or identity in anything else other than you. That's what it means to be a disciple, to organize our lives around God's glory being experienced as a present reality, a day-to-day, moment-by-moment reality. And so one of the things I think God is doing in this story, as he withdraws his presence and he creates this anxiety, God knows the anxiety's there, he removes his presence, he removes Moses. He could have just spoken to them right in the camp. Why did he pull Moses away? I think one of the things he's doing in withdrawing his presence is to reveal and expose the anxiety and the idolatry that's already there to reveal and to expose the futility of that pursuit, the futility of trying to go to a promised land without God. He's saying, you can have it, but it is meaningless. It won't give you what you want. And some of us that are older in the room, and we've been down that path, we know what it's like to give ourselves to our work and to find at the end of that road, emptiness and futility. We're wealthy, we have a lot of status, maybe we've written some books, or maybe we have a platform, but in all the ways that count, we're empty. 
So Moses asks to experience God's glory. God comes and he says, I'm going to make all of my goodness pass before you. There's this promise given to Moses that you can encounter my presence. You can experience my presence. Moses says, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go without your presence. Essentially, Moses is saying, you are the promised land, right? You are what I desire. You are my glory. You are what gives this journey meaning and purpose. Without you, we are doomed to futility and idolatry and injustice. And so Moses just has this holy discontent, this holy longing to see God's face. The, the word there is panayim. It's, 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 it's a word for intimacy, face-to-face, personal presence. That's what he wants. I want to experience your goodness. I want to experience your graciousness, not just in a general way, not just theologizing in an abstract way. I need a word for me right now. That's what Moses says. What matters most to me is a real, authentic encounter with you. He says, I know that you're good and just. I know that these things are true about you in a general way, but I need to know that you are good towards me and towards us right now in the midst of all this sin and anxiety. I want to get into that, not just look at it. That's how a disciple approaches God, right? Disciples approach God not to use God to get what they want, but they, have, they approach God as Moses did to find God as beautiful and satisfying in who he is in and of himself, not what he can do for us. That's the pursuit of a disciple. I want to get into your presence because your presence, presence is fullness of joy. To, to be in communion with you is to experience everything my heart longs for. I don't need wealth for that. I don't need status for that. I don't need work success for that. You are everything that I need. And so God reveals himself to Moses. He hides him in the cleft of the rock, right? Because again, the fullness, the intensity of his presence is too powerful. It would literally, like you ever seen Indiana Jones, that, that moment where they encounter the ark and they open it up and everybody's face melts. It's like claymation, you know, it's, it's, it's okay, it's too, it's too young in this, in this service. <clears throat> Just watch it on YouTube, it's pretty, it's pretty rad. like the technology was awesome at the time. But it, it, like that's what would happen to you, Moses. If you experience the fullness of his presence, it's like trying to stare at the sun during an eclipse, it'll literally burn your retina. If you're entering into a nuclear power plant without the appropriate protection, this is the presence of God. And then God reveals his name to Moses. Chapter 34, the Lord came down in a cloud, verse five. He stood with him there, and he proclaimed his name, the Lord, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of him, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth Generations. Now, there's a lot in there that we don't have time to talk about today, and I'm sure this raises tons of questions about generational sin, and what does he mean by this? Go back and listen to our Exodus, and we did a whole sermon on this. Uh, but what I want to say, and just point your attention to right now, is that God reveals his name. To reveal your name, the idea of a name in the ancient Near East is something that identifies the essence of who you are. It's your identity. It's your character. So he reveals these attributes, and all of these attributes are not abstract doctrinal statements about God. They're relational, right? And they're specific responses to the very sin that the people just committed. 
God says, I am a just God, but I'm also compassionate. I will renew my covenant with you is essentially what he's saying here in this passage. And Moses has this encounter with God and it transforms him. He comes off the mountain and immediately begins to worship and to invite the community into an encounter with God that begins to become a regular rhythm in the community. And that, my friends, is what we all need every single day. We need more than anything else in our lives, not more information. God help us, we have so much access to information in our age. We don't need more information to change us. We don't need inspiration and and good feelings and groovy vibes. We don't need insight, right? Like I'm all for therapy, but like insight alone doesn't transform. What we need is transformation that comes by integrating and experiencing the presence of God and internalizing that until it becomes the most real thing about us, the most true thing about us, and something that we can encounter and experience on a day-by-day basis. If we experience the glory of God and the presence of God in our souls, we can handle anything. I promise you, you can handle anything with joy and confidence and peace. We often pray for God's will, God show me where to go, do I take this job or not, do I go to this college or not, do I date this person or not, do I marry this person, do I stay married to this person? All great questions to ask. But what we need more than understanding God's will is having an encounter with God's presence. Because I promise you, if you have an encounter with God's presence, all of those other things will become so much clearer. And in the up and down of life, in the end of the day, that is what it means to be a disciple. It's to walk in the presence of God. Now, we could do a whole biblical theology of presence again, we don't have time. So I'm just going to cut right to the chase here. But I want to throw this on the screen because this is really the central message of the Bible. The central message of the Bible is not just that God forgives our sins, right? It is that God is present with his people. From Genesis to Revelation, there is this promise of God's presence with us and for us and in us and then through us. And that's what this encounter with Moses is foreshadowing. It is foreshadowing, it is echoing Genesis, and it is foreshadowing the coming of Jesus, right? The tabernacle, the temple, the exile, all pointing forward to the moment when Jesus shows up in history in Matthew chapter you know, one or John chapter one, and it says that Jesus tabernacled among us. The very presence of God is now available to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus lives in constant communion with God, the presence of God. There was nobody more present to God, more filled with God's spirit than Jesus. He's filled with the spirit of God. He walks in constant communion with the presence of God. And then he offers that presence through his life, death, and resurrection. The veil is torn. We have access now to the holy of holies, the very presence of God, the forgiveness of God, yes, but also the reconciliation with God's very presence. And that reality goes from being like an externalized thing that's in the temple with all the rituals to now becoming an internalized thing. And then we read this beautiful passage in 1 Corinthians 6 where it says, now by the Holy Spirit, we are the temple of God. The very presence of God lives inside of us. We have access to the presence of God and all we have to do is just become aware. Like how many of us, it's like this inheritance. Like how many of us would love to be a trust fund baby, right? Like you'd love to have just 
a, a secret fortune that was just opened up to you, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm a millionaire, right? That'd be amazing. And, and like, here's the reality spiritually. You are rich with the blessing of God because of Jesus. If you are by grace through faith in relationship with Jesus, you are rich in all the ways that matter. And yet it's as if we live without this awareness of the riches of God's presence that are made available to us every single day. And so that is the imitation for the children of God to recognize and enter into the fullness of God's presence day in and day out. This is what throughout church history spiritual writers have called the manifest presence of God, right? There's the general presence of God in the world, right? Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I escape from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? God's presence is everywhere. He is both transcendent in the language of theology, but also imminent in his creation. He's not a detached father. He is very involved, very near to us. This is one of the core truths of Christianity throughout the ages. And yet there is a deeper layer of experiencing God's presence that we are invited into. This is what's called the manifest presence of God or the felt presence of God. There's a whole tradition of the church that oftentimes in the West we miss. It's called the contemplative tradition. It goes back to the desert fathers and mothers. And I know like people in the Midwest are like, desert fathers? No, desert fathers, literally people who moved out into the desert uh, as Rome was falling apart to get in touch with their union with God and to just spend their time soaking in the love of God so that they could come back into the world and be a blessing to the world. And I could read you lots and lots of quotes from these people, but I'm short on time as usual. So I'll read you one by A.W. Tozer. We're reading this book together. We have a class going on right now. He says, God wills that we should push on into his presence and live our whole life there. This is to be known to us in conscious experience. It is more than a doctrine to be held. It's not less than a doctrine, but it is more than a doctrine to be held. It is a life to be enjoyed every moment of every day. This is the invitation of God to us to experience his presence, to be transformed by his presence. And that's not just a one-time thing that happens when you become a disciple of Jesus and check, I'm done with that. It is a daily process of becoming awake in deeper and deeper and deeper ways to the very presence of God. It's not that God is not present to us. It's that we are often not present to God. And so I just, two quick invitations as we close. Two quick invitations for those who might be saying, okay, yeah, that's great, but what does it actually look like to get into that? What does it actually look like practically as we get ready to go to communion? Just two invitations that I have for you. One, I know that for many of us, we don't experience the active presence of God, right? We, we live in a moment where um, our society in so many ways um, is a society that's been emptied of kind of the plausibility structures of what it means to experience the presence of God. And we just live with this kind of internal sense, maybe because of our own sin, because of our environment, whatever, Lots of reasons, but we don't feel God's presence. And, and, and I want to invite you to reframe something, to reframe God's presence as proof 
that he doesn't exist or that he's not real or that he doesn't care about you, which is that narrative that we carry, the sense of abandonment. If I don't experience God's presence, it must be because God is not there. I'm knocking on the door and nobody's home. But here's the thing, we, here's the gift that we get from the contemplatives over church history. If you read the contemplatives, you read people who are really into experiencing the presence of God, um, is that there is a whole category for the absence of God as actually an invitation to seek God in a deeper way. John of the Cross is one of the greats in this area. He was a Spanish uh, mystic and writer. He writes about the dark night of the soul. And he says, sometimes, just like here in Exodus, God withdraws his presence, not because he doesn't love us. He withdraws his presence to purify our faith. And the reason we don't experience his presence is sometimes because he's obscure, but it's sometimes because we're blind. And we have to enter into this, what he calls the dark night of the soul, where God, through his absence, strips us of all of our false attachments, all of those things that we depend on, all of those things that we have become habituated to, looking to for meaning and significance and purpose, all of the anxiety that arises in us is then designed to be reoriented towards God. As we discover those attachments, we root those attachments out, we repent of our sin, we confess those attachments, God invites us into a deeper awareness and experience of his presence available to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're in a moment where you're not experiencing that, to reframe that from like, God doesn't love me, God's not here with me, and I gotta deconstruct my faith, yeah, maybe there's some things that need to be deconstructed. Maybe there's some things that need to be torn down that are unhealthy, that are toxic in terms of how you've experienced God, not who God is, but how you've experienced God through his church and through the brokenness of his people. But that doesn't mean that God is not good, that God is not real, that God is not still present to us. It's, it's a very normal developmental experience that people have noted throughout the ages. We've just forgotten about in our time. So reframe. And then secondly, I just want to invite you to practice the presence of God, right? This phrase comes from a man, and I think this is such a helpful example, a man named Nick Herman. Maybe you've heard of Nick Herman. Maybe not. He lived a couple hundred years ago. But he was, what I love about Nick is he was just a, he was a blue-collar guy, right? So this is not like you have to be a mystic, you have to be some sort of elite, you have to be like have a, you know, seminary degree, or you have to be making a certain amount of money. He was a blue-collar guy. He worked in the food industry, worked at McDonald's, worked at Wendy's. And he tried stints in the military and transportation. It was a short-order cook. And he had this deep dissatisfaction with his life. He's a follower of Jesus, but deeply dissatisfied. And one day, he was out in nature looking at a tree. And God revealed to him that the secret to life was about being rooted in a deeper source of life. Just like the roots of this tree go down to a source of water that sustains and provides nutrients, that is the secret to life with God. And so he began to experiment with what he called habitual, silent, secret conversation of the soul with God. And doing all of his life in loving communion with God as simply an act of love to God and to other people. He acquired a name. He became a, a lay brother of a Carmelite monastery. And he acquired the name Brother Lawrence. Maybe you heard Brother Lawrence. Um, if you've never read his book, Practicing the Presence of God, it is 60 pages. It is phenomenal. I commend this to you as a great resource on what it looks like to do this in the everyday ordinary. But he was a cook. He didn't become a professional monastic. And, and it was said of him, the good brother found God everywhere, as much as while he was repairing shoes as he was praying in community. 
He said this, the most holy and necessary practice in life is practicing, learning to practice the presence of God in our everyday ordinary lives. That means finding constant pleasure in his divine company, speaking humbly and lovingly with him in all seasons at every moment. After he died, some friends put together a book of his letters and conversations. This book has outsold C.S. Lewis. It's outsold J.R.R. Tolkien. It's outsold Richard Dawkins. I mean, this is like outside of the Bible, one of the most read books in the history of the church. And it's just a simple cook saying, I want the presence of God. I'm just learning how to have this ongoing inner dialogue and awareness of the presence of God in my life. And I'm trying to sustain that and see that as the very thing that makes life meaningful and purposeful. Just becoming aware of the presence of God. And so I just encourage you toward that end to practice the presence of God, to become aware by the power of the Spirit that God is in you. As Augustine said, he is in you deeper than you are in yourself. The Spirit of God lives in you. And we have this invitation day in and day out to create space, to open ourselves to the presence and the power of God. And through prayer, just to be reminded that God is with us and he's for us. So I want to invite you to put your stuff away. We'll go to communion. And as we enter into communion, which is, I mean, gosh, the drama of God's presence with us, right? That Jesus came to be present with us, that God didn't stay absent from our lives, that God entered into the mess of our lives. He made his presence available to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And now, as he's poured out the Spirit, we have real access to his presence. So as we go to communion, I just want to read a passage of Scripture, and I want you to take these words to heart. I want you to imagine it, maybe if you want to get in a posture, just lifting your hands up. If you just want to get in a, close your eyes, however you can kind of get in a posture to receive. I want you to receive these words and meditate on these words as God's words to you this morning. Because this is a beautiful promise and a beautiful invitation that many of us don't take God up on enough. And maybe this becomes a prayer for you through the rest of this week as you seek to encounter the presence of God in your own life. Second Corinthians chapter three, verses 16 through 18, speaking about this very situation where Moses is going up into the presence of God and his face is veiled because he's radiating with the very glory of God. Here's what Moses, here's what Paul says to us, commenting on that and applying that to us now as the church. Hear these words. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The veil of the self, the veil of sin, the veil of every obstacle that stands in our way from experiencing the love of God transforming us. It's removed, it's taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's what we get in the presence of God, freedom. God longs for us to experience that freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Father, we open ourselves to your presence. Would you remove every obstacle, remove every barrier that keeps us from experiencing the fullness of your presence? And God, would you plant in us, as your people, a desire to know you for who you are, to experience your presence, your beauty, your goodness, your justice, your love for us in Jesus Christ. God, help us to not just be religious people who consume your benefits, who pursue progress, 
and power and prosperity apart from your presence. God, we don't want any of it. We don't want to go one more step forward in our lives if you don't go with us. And we thank you that you are with us, that you are in us, and that you are with us by your Holy Spirit. And so, God, we just receive again that good news. And as we come to communion now, God, would you just seal that in our hearts supernaturally, miraculously? Would you work miracles in our hearts to remove the veils that separate us from you? And God, would you open us just again to experience in our very bodies, in our imagination, our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, the reality of your presence. We ask these things in